This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The trial uh, for two liberals facing bribery charges in a 2015 by-election has started today. The premier herself will be testifying on September 13th to talk to mo- uh, to talk more about all of this. Christo Avalis is with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, uh, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Uh, Christo, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We certainly hear about this stuff all the time. Uh, we understand it goes on in politics all the time, but what's different in this scenario? Well, I mean, the publicity is, is something we don't often see. I mean, often there's always accusations of when a politician crosses the floor, for instance, with Glenn Tebow, you know, being an NDP uh, politician and then joining the Liberal Party and then kind of being given a, you know, a leading role in that government. You know, whenever that happens, there's always accusations of, well, what was that person on the take? Were they given money or influence? But we always kind of like just say, well, that's politics. In this case, though, it is going through a trial, and there is this sense that, you know, maybe there's a, a paper trail here or there's a system of, of formal agreements that, that, that violated ethical rules and, and, and potentially uh, legal rules. So I think that's what's attention. And, and finally, um, we're, we're pretty close to an election. You know, this isn't happening in 2016. This is happening you know, potentially less than a year away, maybe even maybe even nearer than that from the next provincial election. So is this just due to carelessness, uh, not not watching their step as they went through this process? I mean, at the end of the day, as we mentioned, it goes on all, t- all and all the time, but this one generated in charges in a trial. Well, I mean, in terms of, like, was it due to negligence or malice? I mean, I, mean, I, I won't want to speculate on that because, I mean, that's part, part, partially the, the reason for for this trial, but I, I do think that, you know, it, it, it happened within a real politically charged climate. I mean, the energy file has been a difficult one for the uh, provincial liberals, uh, both for Kathleen Wynne and her predecessor, um, you know, whether it's the gas plants and all this. And then you combined with the fact that you're poaching somebody else from another party. Uh, it was a very tense by-election uh, fought there in the community, you know, it divided uh, for example, the labor community there, some of which supported Glenn Tebow as a liberal, but some of them remain loyal to the NDP. So you add uh, the political tensions to the, the difficulty and intensity of the energy file, which, you know, Ontarians all over the province, um, whether they're business people or whether they're just trying to heat their home. You know, hydro is, is a constant source of, of, of trouble for the government. I think it's a perfect storm in that sense, politically at least. But then in the, in the end, Christo, uh, why didn't the others generate uh, charges like this one did? I mean, y- y- is it just because people are more angry with government now for the reasons you just mentioned? I mean, I don't think that's quite the... Cause I, I mean, I don't want to insinuate that, you know, the, the, the prosecutors are, are, are being driven by politics. I think that's more, um, you know, due to the, the, the public uh, view on it. I think in this case, and, I, and again, I don't want to speculate, uh, you know, the exact reason trial's just beginning. I think it's, there's, a, it, it, there's a connection here. It's connected with the, the policies of the government. There was a kind of sense that, you know, you could kind of point to things. And, and again, a lot of it is coincidence, potentially, but there's a kind of confluence of coincidences that, that could lead, at the very least, that prosecution saying, look, we really have to investigate and we're going to bring charges on this issue of potential, you know, elections, briberies, and improprieties. And, of course, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. But, you know, you wouldn't, you know, bring uh, charges to court 
uh, frivolously in this regard. Because, again, as you said, there's so many accusations of bribery and impropriety, and yet so few cases ever even make it to a formal venue. Uh, how bad is it when a premier gets called to testify? It's not good. It's, it's not good. I mean, it, 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 it's something that almost certainly she would want to avoid. Um, I don't think Kathleen Wynne can gain a lot from it. At the very least, she comes out looking um, innocent in a legal perspective, but, 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 you know, sullied in a kind of political perspective that this was allowed to happen. A lot of people, if she's found innocent, still aren't going to believe her, and they're going to think, well, you know, she bribed them. You know, sure, she's not guilty in the court of law, but she's guilty in the court of public opinion. And, you know, I think it, it, it just brings a lot of publicity. There were talks about, well, the liberals might call a fall election. Well, the polls aren't looking good for them. And, I mean, if Kathleen Wynne does poorly on the stand, I mean, that's going to reverberate. And it's certainly going to make her personal popularity struggle, and by definition, the, the party. So, I mean, I would never want, you know, if I was a you know, staffer for a political party to have my leader or, you know, the premier or the prime minister or a mayor or what have you have to testify on a potential, you know, trial of this kind of magnitude. Uh, would she want to, obviously being called by the Crown, uh, and these are members of her staff that are that these allegations are against that are charged, would she want to defend those being charged or is she going to let them take the fall? I mean... That's, uh, that's her team's legal strategy. I, I think it's a balance, right? You know, if you – and it's also, you know, and, and, and I'm sure that everyone involved has spoken to their legal team, and this is why whenever you see a legal drama, they're always like, you, with your lawyers, you've got to tell them everything you know, and the lawyers can make that decision. And my inkling would be um, if, if she honestly did nothing wrong and this was an issue more of incompetence, then she has to kind of limit her defense of her staff. She can't throw them out to dry because that makes her look like a poor and opportunistic leader. But obviously, if she honestly doesn't know the full extent of what happened and how the operations on the ground were running, she kind of has to be truthful in that. But that gets back to the problem of, that gets back to the problem of well, you know, even if this is incompetence, this is the leader of our province, this is the leader of the, one of the biggest subnational governments in the world, and we really need that person to be on top of their game when it comes to, like, the running of their organization. So I think it really puts her in a difficult position. Of course, if there is impropriety on her end and the staff are covering for her, there could be, you know, you know we, we have to kind of stick together on this because if one of us goes down, we all go down. And I'm not suggesting that that's necessarily the case, but that would kind of have a different motivation for everybody. Will, would they be sticking together? Would everybody be on the same page on this? Um, again, it depends on the truth of the matter. I right. think that, you know, with anything like this, if there's a lot of moving parts, it's, you know, hypothetically, everyone could kind of say, look, we're all going to keep the same story. But again, different perspectives, uh, different motivations. The Crown could, could seek, you know, informant, informants, if you will, for lack of a better term, from various people involved. So I wouldn't say that it's guaranteed. But again, if, if they all kind of share a part of the blame in this, and they can limit their legal and like political exposure by by sticking to the same story. Then I think they would probably try to do that. But you know, a prisoner's dilemma type thing. If if somebody involved is able to cut a deal in exchange for testimony, for instance, then then in a scenario like that, that that kind of loyalty 
falls out the side, out, out the wayside. Odd that uh, the 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 person who ended up being the victor in all of this, and that's Min- Energy Minister Glenn Tebow, ends up to go on and become the Energy uh, Minister, which is one of the most volatile <laughs> portfolios in the whole government. How ironic is that? Yes, I mean it was a diff- like I mean Glenn Tebow was a federal MP for the for the for the New Democrats. He was one mm-hmm. of the people who won um, recently, and then he left the party allegedly over ideological matters and personal matters, and then crossed the, didn't so much cross the floor because he, he, went to, he switched jurisdictions and then ran for the by-election and won that by-election in, in Sudbury. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, I think, I think, you know, from his perspective, it probably was a, a move to gain more political influence. There was probably a sense that, you know, look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, mem- I'm a member of the official opposition Federally, but I'm not really a high-profile member uh, on Tom Mulcair's team, um, and who knows if we'll form government. In retrospect, they didn't. But you know, Kathleen Wynne is coming to me uh, and saying, "Look, join me provincially, and we can, um, and, and you'll get a seat in cabinet." And I think, from that perspective, it was it was an offer he couldn't pass up. Of course, it's turned out to be quite difficult for him. Um, now that he's embroiled in this scandal, potentially, and even beyond the scandal, the file he picked up is certainly a hot potato. Uh, yeah, that's putting it mildly. Why were others not charged here? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it, it's, it, you know, the Crown, the trial's just starting. We need to see all the evidence. I'm guessing that it's the, the Crown has a priority in what they want to achieve and a, a sense of the evidence they have you know, the admissibility of the evidence, the validity of the evidence. And that's why I think, you know, they have to look at that. I mean, maybe politics plays a, a role. I mean, the premier herself hasn't been charged, for instance. But um, that's, that's, that's something to, to ask the Crown, I would, I, I would say, about their motivations for who they have and haven't charged. Uh, surprise, the Crown has called the Premier as a witness. Uh, I guess we can't be there. Uh, how will the, the defense handle this? Uh, why would they not try to, try to use her first? I'm not, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure. I think, you know, the, the defense might want, hope to keep the Premier out of it. Um, you know, if the def- but I, I feel that, you know, the Crown certainly has the motivation. I, I would say that the defense worried that you know it could cause uh you bring profile to the scandal and all of this and, and kind of just create this tension would try to avoid it but the crown i think has this motivation of well if there is this impropriety we need to kind of substantiate it the premier could be a witness to that regard and we have to bring her there and i think you know the crown would, is also in calling them doing their job i mean if this is an issue with a by-election with a high-profile seat with somebody who became a cabinet minister crossing from another party, there's certainly these political motivations that go beyond the local riding and would go at least to the premier's office. And so even beyond the kind of charges of bribery, you want to see where the premier was involved in this matter on a political sense. You know, what decisions she made? Did she recruit Tebow? What does that influence have? Did her staff at her, uh, you know, Queen's Park office have a role in this? And that's kind of important because, again, with a by-election, with a, a general election on Ontario, we have dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of seats that are all contested. And the premier can only have so much influence, you know, and so much, you know, hours in the day 
to play a role. But with a by-election, we might have one or two or three seats at most, you know, being contested. And, you know, winning these by-elections is important for momentum and to show the media and the public that, you know, your government's strong. So, you know, a premier's involvement in a by-election could be higher than normal in a political sense. So I think that kind of raises the stakes. Whereas if there was bribery charges in a random seat in the 2015 federal election in Saskatchewan, it might be harder to connect that to Justin hmm. Trudeau or Tom Mulcair or Stephen Harper. How long is this going to take? How long will this drag on? And, and how much of an influence will, will it have on the next election? I mean, I guess depending on how long it drags on, that'll, have the, that'll help determine the influence. I think, you know, the, the longer it goes, the, the, the more that the opposition can point to it and say, you know, this is the scandals. The scandals didn't go away when Dalton McGuinty was gone. You know, Kathleen Wynne ran last time saying, you know, we're a new liberal government, we're a new team, but that, was, that wasn't the case. There's certainly a trial right now. It's going to hang over that entire election. You know, the opposition will have to be careful. Again, if you badger something for too long, it might, you know, it might not, it might be seen as you're playing, you're, you're desperate, but I certainly think that will have an effect. And, and again, it goes to the particular issues. I mean, if the government was otherwise you know, clean on, on, on these issues perceptively, it might not have the worst effect. But this is, this is hitting a government on a specific issue that they've had struggles with, which is, you know, this perception of uh, impropriety, this pers- and especially it intersects with, you know, the, the partisan politics of floor crossing, even if this wasn't, you know, within the same jurisdiction. People are always wary of that. And finally, it, 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 it comes into the energy profile because it's dealing with the seat won by the by the, the the current energy minister, and again, energy is going to be, you know, a, a big part of the next election. Whether it's the biggest part or not, you know, that's left to be seen. But, you know, energy prices, energy policy is going to be something that that's going to to move a lot of of you know, issues uh, come the next election. And speaking of McGinty, uh, gas plant scandal also uh, starting up at this point, too. So it's a, it's a double barrel for them. Well, exactly, exactly. You know, because, again, the hope was for this, for the current, it was like, look, we, McGinty's gone. We have this new leader, you know. She's, um, you know, she's, she's fresh. The scandals are behind us. But right. as we've seen, we've had issues happen since then. And just because she wasn't premier during the gas pant scandal, doesn't mean that it won't currently be attributed to many of the, the liberal MPs and that, you know, the, the, the NDP and the progressive conservatives won't try to, you know, bolster that, that connection in the public mindset. So I think all of this together certainly doesn't look good. Again, it's, it's in a way almost like the, you know, Hillary Clinton in, mm. in the presidential election where, you know, she testified before the, the, uh, the Senate on on, you know, improprieties and her role in things and all that. And she did quite well, but it certainly didn't help her. And then there was the FBI investigation that that they started up again and then stopped. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that we'll see anything of that sort in this provincial election, but, you know, it certainly paints a narrative Hmm. of, you know, a Kathleen Wynne government that's, that's not necessarily fully above board. And again, in a court of law, you're innocent until proven guilty. In a court of public opinion, it's a lot less. Uh, it's a lot less favorable to the defendant. Christo Abelis has been with us, uh, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, thank you for the time. As always, much appreciated.
Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. As you all know, kids back to school this week, uh, big changes, uh, <laughs> lots of energy, lots of anxiety uh, for both kids and parents. And uh, as uh, a parent of a kid who uh, is now in her second year in high school, I remember very vividly, and we, we do this every year, is, is sit down and try to figure out what courses she should take for the following year. But what's happening is kids that are in grade eight uh, sometimes are too young to be picking classes for their high school years in in the sense that they're not necessarily getting the information they need uh, and are are, are sort of being streamed into courses based on their past performance. Uh, I was always taught to shoot the highest I possibly could. And then if you had some problems, uh, then you'd rediscuss uh, whether you should uh, channel your studies at all. But it seems that uh, we're just sort of plucking these kids along the path that they've already taken uh, in the past, that is, and not really giving them much option for improvement or, uh, of course, cutting off the options uh, a couple of years before uh, they've really had the... uh, uh, the time to think about what their options are. To talk about all of this, Sean Meager is with us, Executive Director of Social Planning Toronto. He is on the line with us now. Hello, Sean. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, do you think the kids? Thanks for having me, Scott. Do you think the kids are equipped to make these life decisions about high school and grade eight? Well, Scott, my kids are just a little bit older than yours are, and, and I remember it vividly too. And you know, thirteen-year-olds generally aren't really prepared to make huge life decisions. And the choices they make about what stream they're going to take in high school will affect their post-secondary and their career choice. And, and you know, I, I remember having this discussion uh, with my daughter, and it's a tremendous amount of pressure to put on the kids because you're basically trying to ask them to choose a career path at such an early age. Is it that, or are we just trying to stop them from cutting off their options here? Well, and they, they are required to make a choice, and, and often they're making a choice without really fully understanding the implications. Um, and, of course, that's partly where parents come in. But, but in our study, what we found is that a lot of the parents also didn't really understand the implications of the choices because the communications really need to be improved and the engagement of parents needs to be improved. So what is not being understood here? So uh, a lot of kids didn't realize what the difference was between an applied and an academic program. They didn't realize that that uh, they may be cutting off choices about future careers and future education by choosing applied. Um, a lot of them just continue to take the kind of courses that most of the other kids in their school uh, were taking or most of the other kids in their class were taking um, without really understanding what the consequences of that were. Um, and as you mentioned quite rightly earlier, a lot of them continue on the path that they've been on instead of setting goals and planning for improvement and growth. So explain to everybody the difference in applied and academic. So generally speaking, if you uh, take an academic program, you're going to qualify for, for universities and to the, for the kinds of careers that you need a university degree to get. So if you want to be in engineering or medicine, you know, um, that's uh, the path that you need to be on to have those options available to you. Applied programs are more likely to get you into um, a community college, uh, and which is also a great choice, but it's a choice you should understand and should understand the implications of. And, and I know my kids, when they were 13, weren't really mature enough to make the kinds of choices that could shape the whole rest of their lives. So uh, maybe I'm aging myself here, but is this like going back to the old days of advanced and general? 
Yep. It would be very it's, similar, it's would it very not? very much like that. And, yeah, what, what happened, though, was, was that there was a decision made to say, oh, you know what, let's not stream kids so much, because what we found when we studied the old advanced and general system uh, was that, that it disproportionately affected some kids, kids from particular kinds of racial backgrounds, kids who were immigrants, kids who were from uh, lower-income families. And so we passed a policy that said we're not going to stream kids anymore. But what our study is showing is that um, though we changed the policy, we didn't bring in practices that, that give that policy real meaning, that actually make those choices matter for kids. Uh, and that's the piece that's, the, that's missing now. So when the province said today they're going to gather more statistics and they're going to look at, at how to improve outcomes, um, that's great. But what they really need to do is invest in the kinds of supports for parents and kids that, that help them get the information they need and make the choices that matter for them. How many, and I, I don't know if we can give a percentage here or what the deal is, but how many are making the wrong choice? Because again, if you're in grade eight and you decide to go into an applied stream as opposed to an academic stream, you are drastically reducing uh, your options. Why not just start everybody at the top and move from there? Well, I'm, I mean, that, that sort of, that seems... That seemed to be the that, that seemed to be the, uh, uh, the the thinking when and again it was an awful long time since I was in school but that seemed to be the thinking yeah. back then was you started high and then if you needed a certain course to drop down or take more in it you would you you would adjust accordingly. Yeah, and what we see is in, in the patterns is that that's that's how people assume they should go in some neighborhoods and not in others. I mean, one of the things in our, our report is a map of Toronto that shows who, who goes into what stream, and it matches very, very closely to a map of Toronto of income. So in some neighborhoods, people just assume, oh, my kid's going to go to university, and or yeah. the kids assume that they're going to do that. But in other neighborhoods, they assume that you know their options really are limited, and they really should be low, because you know, that's what people expect, and that's how things have gone in the past instead of looking at, at the kinds of choices they could make to grow and have the brightest future possible. So because you are a student who is perhaps from a, low, a lower socioeconomic class and you're having difficulty in school, does that mean you have no chance of going to university? What about, you know, I mean, we all have breakthrough teachers, breakthrough years, breakthrough moments exactly. where we see the light and, and, and you're off and running. So are, are these yeah. options not available to these kids? And that's what we saw in this study is kids talked about those breakthrough teachers and those moments in their lives when they were, you know, uh, ready to, to, you know, take on something bigger and tougher. Um, but what we have in the system that we've got right now is that, that they're making choices at 13 um, before they've really gotten to the point in their high school career where they might meet that teacher and make that change. And what we're seeing is it's really hard to correct um, uh, a wrong choice when you discover the right one. Uh, technically, it's allowed. But practically, it's quite difficult. Uh, and so that's another place where we have a policy that makes a lot of sense. But we don't have the practices to support. Do teachers have a rough idea by the time a student gets to grade seven, six, seven or, or, or eight, what their future will be like? Can we predict that? And, and what we know from, from uh, child development research is no, we can't. I mean, you can make a good guess, and sometimes those guesses are right, but sometimes they're wrong. Uh, brains change, kids change, um, kids who struggle in school um, while they're in the process of learning English um, may later have English, you know, uh, down pat and, and flourish in school. So we don't really know enough when they're grade 6, grade 7, grade 8, what all of their future possibilities are. And what the kids are telling us in that study uh, that we just published today um, is that they didn't feel like they were ready and they felt like they were a lot readier in, say, grade 10 or 11 
to make big choices about their lives. Tell us more about the kids you did talk to. Uh, you said this was too early in age. Uh, they were more ready in grade 10 or 11. How do we address this? W- what is the feedback from the kids on this? So what they're saying is, you know, put us into, you know, undifferentiated programs uh, for a little bit longer. You don't get streamed in grade 7. You don't get streamed in grade 8. But you do get streamed in grade 9. And there's no magic moment that says you have to get streamed in grade 9. We could offer programs, and we do in some pilot uh, schools, um, where we don't differentiate the, the um, uh, applied versus academic stream in grade 9 or in grade 10. Um, and then they make choices about their future education when they're a little closer to understanding what those mean. Uh, and those have been really successful. There have been uh, pilots of this in, in uh, Toronto and all over the world that have been really quite uh, productive for the kids. So what the kids said to us was, I'm going to be more ready in grade 10 or 11. And what the research tells us is they're right about that. What what does it actually mean? What is the what's the definition of streaming into a course? What what does that act? What is the process? What does it actually mean? So you you pick a, a, a sort of a, a group of courses that you're going to choose from, um, and those courses are going to be prerequisites for other courses. And, and universities and colleges are going to look to your high school transcript to for the types of courses that you took to decide whether or not you're ready to attend those. So you're really sort of um, putting yourself into a, uh, a group of courses that, that um, you know, allow you to move only in one direction. Um, and unless you take yourself out of that group of courses and transfer to another group, um, you've cut off some real options. So who is making that decision for the kids? Who is influencing what they say or is nobody influencing what they say and then them just feeling, oh, I can't do that? And it's a bit so, of a mix, so is somebody we, so is somebody actually physically saying no? You go to that line. You go to that line. Uh, no, um, for the most part, they're not. And we did encounter a couple of kids who said, "Well, I, I picked academic, but they put me down for applied." But for the most part, um, the kids are getting to make a choice. But what there what isn't there is the guidance counselor to help explain it to them and their parents um, in a way that they understand. Uh, what isn't there is support for teachers who play that incredible role in some kids' lives. Um, to be that sort of one-on-one support to help them recognize that they have more possibilities than they've realized so far. Um, what isn't there is enough information, enough parent engagement to make sure that the parents are able to support the kids in that decision. Is it just a case of having more information? I remember being a high school student, I don't know, I think it was in grade 10, I had some issues, I had some difficulty, and I remember seeing on my report card, strongly recommend general. And I thought, to hell with that, uh, you know, I want more out of life. And, and, and I guess I just kept my nose to the grindstone. Are, are kids mm-hmm. in that case more apt just to take general? Um, it, it, it really depends on the kid. And, and what we're seeing, though, is that the kids are making choices based on past patterns and not on future possibilities. Uh, and they aren't getting enough support to make that choice as best as they can. So what students is this, does this seem to be affecting the most? Is there certain, uh, uh, is there certain yeah. socioeconomic groups? Does it seem to be affecting one more than the other? Yeah, what we're seeing as a pattern is that, that you end up with more kids who are streamed if they're from uh, lower-income families, if they're from um, uh, uh, racialized backgrounds. Um, and, and we know from, from you know, experience and from research that, that there is as many talented kids in every group uh, but what we see in, in the data uh, in terms of outcomes 
uh, is that some kids just don't end up with the opportunity to go to university, uh, even though they have the potential. So uh, in the end, how do we open up these options, Sean? How do we make these options available to everyone? So we basically said there's three things we ought to do, and one is we ought to make this decision later in kids' lives. Uh, give them the time to mature a little bit more, to think about their futures a little bit more, um, and and make good choices based on um, real learning. The second is we need to support parents a little bit more. The, the engagement of parents is clearly not uh, sufficient to get them directly involved in these choices as often as they ought to. Uh, and the third is to provide support in the school. That, that special teacher or the guidance counselor, uh, when they're there, they make a huge difference. It's just that they're not there that often anymore. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of that. That uh, Talk a little bit about the role of the guidance counselor, why it's so important. Uh, do we have enough of them in school? I remember having very easy access. I was very fortunate, very easy access to uh, a great group of guidance counselors. That's not necessarily the case anymore, is it? No, it's, it's, it's much rarer now, and, and, and that's one of the challenges. Is we see you know, sort of uh, one in three is a, a not uncommon statistic for the availability of guidance counselors by schools. And, and that's just and that's not enough to be able to provide parents and students with that kind of one-on-one support. And if it can't be guidance counselors, we should be supporting our teachers to you know, be able to spend a little extra time with, with uh, that kid that they've made a connection to, to be able to support them in making a, a key decision like this. When do you make these decisions? How do you make these decisions? I mean, can you make these decisions without sitting down with the teacher and talking about what the best route is? Absolutely. You fill out a form. Um, so you know, the, that's part of the, the difficulty is, is that you know, there, there's a lot of, uh, like, like with your kids, like with my kids, a lot of decisions they're making at 13 years old. It's very, very stressful for them. Um, but, but there isn't uh, a mechanism in place to make sure that you talked to the person you need to talk to or that you got the support or the guidance that you needed. And there isn't that for parents uh, in particular. Uh, there's, there are ways for them to get information, um, but if they don't connect to those ways to get information, there's not a clear route beyond that. All right, so say you've got a kid in grade 6, 7, somewhere in there, and obviously this discussion is, uh, is at the table or certainly going to be soon enough. What advice, and let's break it down to parents and students. What, first of all, with students, what advice would you have for, what would you say to the grade 7 or 8 that's thinking, that's talking about this stuff? Well, I'd, I'd say get a lot of information, get a lot of advice, and, and if you possibly can, get your parent into the school. Um, but I'd also say, you know, it's a challenging thing that you've been asked to do, and I'd say to the um, uh, Ministry of Education that, that's supposed to support kids in a way that helps them succeed, um, you've asked, uh, you know, kids who are too young to make decisions that are too impactful, and you've got to give them a little more space. And what about parents? Um, uh, get all the information you can. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are good online tools. There are, you know, if you go into the school and you talk to the uh, school staff, there's information that you can get your hands on. Um, but, but a lot of parents, especially in the neighborhoods where we did this study, they're working two or three jobs and their yeah. lives are pretty stretched and stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a big challenge. And, and we talked to a lot of parents who said, can you just send stuff home with the kids that, that, you know, uh, is in plain English and, and give me a number where I can call to talk to somebody one-on-one to, to decode all of this stuff. Cause I gotta tell you, the, I, yeah. I, I, sympathize with a parent who gets a form that says, does your kid want to go to an applied or academic program in, mm. in secondary school, um, and says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Sean Meager has been with us, Executive Director of Social Planning Toronto, talking about kids making decisions at grade 8 that it could, could, of course, affect the rest of their uh, school careers. Thank you for the time, Sean. Much appreciated. 
Thank you. All right, take care. Let's bring in Annie Kidder, Executive Director, People for Education. Hello, Annie. Thanks for taking the time to join us here. Are kids equipped at grade eight to make these decisions and about where they should be going, uh, academic or applied? Nope. <laughs> Hmm. Everything Sean said is true. Um, I think, you know, we've been putting out reports on this for the last four years, uh, saying we really got a problem uh, from a bunch of different perspectives about kids having to make these choices so young, without enough information, without enough support, and also um, within a context where we know, because we can see it, and the problems today, you know, put out the, the numbers, we can see that some of those choices can close doors for kids that they can't reopen so that you're you're making decisions again without enough information and without enough support and they're decisions that are going to affect you all the way through high school and they're going to affect what what is possible for you to do after you graduate and that is way too young to be um, making decisions that are really going to affect and I, I don't think I'm being melodramatic here they could affect the rest of your life I, I can completely see that Annie um, what what concerns concerns me is the term being streamed into these courses already and again as I was as I was mentioning to Sean back in the day and I, and I don't mean to compare apples to oranges here it was you know you just started at the advanced level and if there was a need or a concern or whatever that you dealt with it later and adjusted accordingly. Why would you even go in starting at the bottom rung of a ladder and not try to, to try for the top anyway? Well, and I think that your your point is good in, in even in terms of evidence. So the evidence is that um, that 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 expecting more of students, that students rise to the occasion, um, and that it, it's become the reality, even though this wasn't the intention of applied and academic uh, courses, uh, the, the, what has become a kind of truth in it is that kids think the applied course is going to be easier. Um, they may be, they may, it may be suggested to them that they should be in applied because they're struggling. For us, the uh, most sort of damning information comes when you look at who is in applied, and they, the kids in applied are, are much more likely to be from low-income families, uh, from families who have low education, from uh, families who are, uh, in some cases, newcomers, and it shouldn't be like that. And there have been pilot projects in Toronto, in Kingston, where, um, as you described, everybody goes into academic, um, and then whoever needs it gets more support, which is really the point. So that you're, you're I'm trying to put this in a proper way, but being being in a class with other people who are, are you know pretty successful in what they're doing actually brings everybody up. Well, exactly. Well, everybody everybody struggles, Annie. Yep, yep. No, and it, and I mean, and the evidence is really strong that that's true. And being in a class, if you're already like just happy dappy and doing great in math or whatever, it doesn't bring you down to yeah. be in a class with people who are struggling. And so it's it's and it's really time. So the province made an announcement today that they were going to look at this, um, and and I and it's great that the social planning councils come out with this report too because it means that, you know, and we've been reporting on it, and Carl James did a report from York University, and the the agreement is pretty unequivocal, and the OECD says you shouldn't be doing this to kids in grade nine. There's no other province in Canada where kids are making these choices this young. So it's really really time to change it. It's, Except we can't just go click, you know, yeah. and disappear applied. What we have to make sure is that 
Um, we have made sure the resources are there, the supports are there. For the kids that we know or we can already see because we already know how they're doing, um, that they, they, they may struggle uh, with the transition to grade 9 and with the transition to ac- academic courses in grade 9. So we have to make sure we've got the other pieces in place, too. I just think, Annie, you know, my best year in high school was grade 13. And uh, <laughs> exactly, because then I finally figured it all out. I thought if people had thrown in the towel at me in grade 9, where would I be? Oh, exactly. And the yeah. kids and their parents, as Sean said, are making these choices yeah. without enough information. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've had kids who are that age. Yeah. They're not necessarily the most sane together or whatever. <laughs> exactly. I'm to put this politely. I know. You know, but it's like the kids are kind of messy at that yeah. age anyway. So let's not add more things to the, the mess that already that some of them are already in. Annie Kidder has been with us, Executive Director, People for Education. Annie, as always, thanks for the time. Much Thank appreciated. You. Okay. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, a leftover from last hour, kids in grade 8, uh, is it too young to be uh, picking classes for high school? A lot of these kids, the teachers are just looking at you know their past performance and saying, well, you just go into applied instead of, uh, of academic. And, of course, what that does is it greatly uh, limits the options that kids have as they move through the school system. Uh, my suggestion, shoot for the stars and then go from there rather than limiting your options uh, before you walk in the door. Uh, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Cam has uh, a comment on this topic. Cam, what are your thoughts? Hey, Scott. Um, no, I was just hearing your, your uh, sort of commentary on the whole issue, and I wanted to provide some of uh, my own comments specifically regarding my personal experience going through that whole process. I, um, you're hearing me right, though. Is that correct? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, just making sure it was all good. Um, no, I, I graduated... Um, elementary school back in 2009. So 2009 was when I started high school. And at the time, what I noticed was that um, there was a lack of information out there for exactly what direction kids were headed in. Um, my understanding at the time was that, you know, you, could, you had three levels of high school learning that you could go to. There's applied uh, that you spoke of, academic, and then locally developed. Uh, and the idea at the time was that the locally developed was so they'll teach you the information you need to join the workforce immediately after high school. Applied was if you had a college-oriented mentality, and academic was university-oriented. But what you have to keep in mind is that nobody knew that at the time. It wasn't until after I entered high school that that became apparent, that that was the information that, that, uh, that wasn't shared with us but was really you know, the norm at the time of, of, of what the so, led to. So how did, how did you make the decision then and what stream to go to if that information I was given to you? That was recommended by our, the elementary school teachers. So before we graduated elementary school, the teacher would give every student a form outlining what the teacher recommended you go into right. in terms of academic level. So, um, so what that meant was, uh, I remember specifically looking at my form, and my teacher gave me this form one time, and it, it would say, for example, in English, I recommend that you go into academic. Uh, mathematics, go into applied, that sort of thing. So it would list all the subjects, and then and you as a student would sort of, I guess, decide based on her recommendations and right. what your parents would think of uh, sort of what stream you want to go into. So, Cam, when did you realize that you had made perhaps the wrong decision? After I entered high school. What grade was that? That was grade 9. So I was fortunate enough. See, this is where it gets a little tricky. Um, I was an at-risk youth at the time, and the school took pre-active, proactive measures in making sure that I succeeded. Specifically, they would uh, set aside one appointment per month to see a guidance counselor to make sure that I was sort of heading in the right direction. There you go. Part of a long story, but my point being 
that's when I found out that academic actually meant that you want yeah. to go to university, and if you were in an applied stream, that that would limit your opportunities down the road for what sort of post-secondary options you had available. So what did you do, Cam? So, I, so my teacher recommended elementary school that I take applied level mathematics, uh, because who's good at math anyway, but right. I wasn't that good. So I, I thought to myself, okay, the teacher knows best. Um, but beyond that, the conversation didn't uh, develop further, right? So no one told anyone that applied led to college or anything lower than that. So did it, that hold you back, Cam? It, uh, I, I was, when I got into high school and I realized that, I had to go through a whole process and I had to jump through some hoops in order to upgrade my applied level to academic. Um, I had to get my parents' signature, their their consent, and all that information in order to be switched into the academic class. So it was it was difficult to switch into the academic class. It didn't make it easier on right. you uh, because it's as if once you were there, they wanted to keep you. And how did you fare once you got there? It was fine, yeah. and, that, and, that, and that's that's what I was surprised by. I mean, yeah. they I, I never took any applied courses, so I can't speak uh, you know to to what the level of difficulty was there, but what the academic courses uh, built on was what you were learning in elementary school. So the same difficulty that every single person yeah. uh, was sort of, uh, every single person fared in elementary school, it just built on that. It was the same level of difficulty. So it wasn't even a struggle, is, is my point. Wow. And, 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 and as I look back now, I mean, it made me a little angry because the, the young people out there mm. that aren't informed, the ones that don't have the same opportunities, the ones that don't realize that by taking applied level education in high school, they don't realize that that will limit their opportunities in regards to post-secondary options down the road, or if anything, make it more difficult for them to succeed down the road. And that's what I think made me a bit upset was the fact that, you know, I come from a low-income family. Uh, I came to Canada as, as a refugee when I was seven years old. My parents had no input yeah. whatsoever. So it was mostly up to me as the student to fend for myself and to figure these things out. And had I not figured it out early on, I might not be graduating from university next month. Wow, good for you, Cam. So it's, yeah, I, I, once I heard you talking about that on the show, I figured I have to call in and you know, provide this input. And well, it, well it, it, Cam, sorry. thank you very much for sharing your story. And it's so great to hear that you're going to be graduating university. Think how things might have been different for you if you hadn't have spoke up and defended yourself that way. Thank you. And um, now I'm, uh, I guess it's important to me to make sure that I'm advocating for young people that don't necessarily have a voice or a say in some of the decisions that they're making in the ninth grade or even eighth grade. For that matter. Cam, thanks for down the road. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Great call and good luck in the future. I appreciate your time. All right, you take care. What a great take story. Care. There you go right, right there. Right. A perfect example of uh, you know what uh, what can happen if you're not correctly informed. And there as Cam said, key person in all of this, his mandatory guidance counselor. If it wasn't mandatory for him because of his situation, where would he be? What about the ones that fall between the cracks? You know? kind of in between somewhere. What happens to them? Uh, great story. Great call. All right, let's move on. Uh, this is the story of a Vancouver father who is no longer allowed to send his kids to school alone on a city bus after the Ministry of Children and Family Development got involved and said that uh, his 11-year-old cannot be responsible for the others, uh, which are 7, 8, and 9. To talk more about all of this, Jordan Donich is with us, criminal lawyer, Donich Law. He is with us now. Jordan, what is, uh, thank you for joining us, what is the law here? What, what does the law state as when we can allow our kids to ride a bus? Well, the law isn't clear, and it's not set in stone for a reason. Um, and, and it's actually a good thing if we think about it for a second here, right? We don't want the government or the state, right, t- 
telling us how to be parents, right? Telling us at what age we can have our kids out or at which age we can no longer chauffeur them. So it's ambiguous. Um, it's done on a case-by-case basis and usually only um, facilitated if there's a report or a safety concern made to the Children's Aid Society, for example. So it is meant to be vague simply because children uh, mature at different levels, I'm guessing. I think so, and I think that's a good thing, right? I mean, um, the last thing we want is the government saying, you can't go anywhere, you can't go to work on time, you can't do anything until uh, you make sure your kid gets to school, you know, chauffeured by you. So uh, how does this case in British Columbia, how do they, and I understand in British Columbia there isn't even a law, I guess Manitoba it's 12 years old, New Brunswick it's 12, Ontario 16, but again a very gray area. In uh, British Columbia there isn't anything, so how can they possibly ban this guy from letting his kids ride the bus? Well, the problem is they use basically uh, the Children's Aid Society equivalent, okay? Right. And they have, you know, very broad-based powers. And it's scary because they'll essentially say, well, look, you know, we're going to create our own rules here because we, we feel there's a safety concern. And if you don't comply, uh, those are going to be our kids now. Why do we hear sometimes more negative stuff about the Children's Aid than we do positive stuff? Well, um, I think, and I'll tell you why. Is that unfair? Is that an unfair comment? But I can comment on this now because I have a a number of cases with CAS uh, now involved. And and I spoke to actually one of their lawyers a couple days ago about this. And I asked this question. And I said, you know, why is that? And I'll tell you why. When someone's charged, right, criminal case, we all know they're presumed innocent, right? So this person's charged. Okay, they're presumed innocent. Let's prove that they're guilty. CAS has the opposite mindset. They start at the point of these kids are at risk. Um, they've been assaulted. They're at danger. Prove us wrong. That's the reason. They start with an opposite presumption that there's an automatic safety concern when there may not be one in the first place. So in a, in a situation where there is no law, as in BC, and their equivalent of the Children's Aid Society has the power that they do, what sort of recourse does the parent have? That, and this is the issue, right? Again, situation I deal with all the time. The parent can do one of two things. They can try to uh, continue the behavior and see what CAS does. Likely what would happen is, uh, well, two, uh, two things would happen. Nothing would happen, or CAS would start a court application and try to in- essentially impose conditions on, on the parent. Uh the fact that no, I guess people found out about this because one person reported it. The fact that the bus driver who's in charge of the vehicle and admits the people on and off the bus, uh, the fact that there doesn't seem to be any sort of concern there, doesn't that play into this at all? I mean, the bus driver clearly thought it was fine. I think so, right? I mean, we live in a society where uh, people are free to move about. Um, I don't think this particular fact scenario had any direct safety concerns, um, but that's all it takes. It takes one person to cause a lot of problems for you. So uh, what about this? So this theoretically could happen in any province. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Right. So the, the age limit really is kind of redundant when you're dealing with kids because CAS has broad based powers, can pretty much do whatever they want anyways. In uh, any jurisdiction, if there's safety concerns, uh, would it matter about the complaint at all? For example, is it somebody on the bus that's saying, "Gee whiz, I was really concerned about these four kids that are alone on the bus." 
or is it, geez, these four kids were on the bus and they were acting up, they were being goofy, they weren't being responsible, they were, you know, were putting people's lives in danger, they were whatever, they were a risk of some sort. Does that hold any weight at all? Well, yeah, let, let's, so let's break this down. I mean, the allegation is, is not, these are rambunctious kids, right? Or these are kids vandalizing. That would have gone the police route, yeah. right? And then police would have gone involved. This is somebody really, who it's really none of their business, um, going out of their way um, to perhaps uh, create issues for a parent, I think, uh, where there may not necessarily have been any issues in the first place. They have created an issue now and are probably watching on the sidelines smiling while this father's going through hell. Uh, again, he has no recourse, does he? Uh, his only, really, his only re- re- recourse at this point could be uh, sending them back on the bus again and seeing what the response of CAS would be, right? And their response probably would be, See, this is, they're going to say, look, this is a bad guy. He's not even listening to us. He's a bad dude. Now we really have to come down on him because he doesn't even listen to us. Yeah. Who knows what kind of guy he is with his kids, even though he's probably a pretty good guy. So, uh, I mean, would you advise him to attempt that? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, this has already turned into a nightmare for this, for this single father, I might add, who's trying to raise his kids and... and uh, what about the fact that, you know, he's, he's trained them for a couple of years, he's done this with them, he, does, does that hold any weight at all? It does, and th- but the problem is this, right? He may have to advance that in a court application. So, and this is, this is what you play with these agencies. It's a, you know, a uh, game of cat and mouse, basically. Who's going to make the first move? The problem is CAS and these agencies have money, they have resources, they have lawyers. Um, father probably does not. So there is always a power imbalance with these scenarios here between you and essentially the government. So, uh, boy, you know, if I was the father, I'm not sure I'd want to do it and risk further prosecution or alienation of some sort. Uh, what if he retains a lawyer now, uh, and as a single single father, I'm guessing he can't afford to do that, but what if he retains a lawyer and, and then goes through this experiment uh, with some guidance? Would that change things? Well, yeah, so, um, but, but you can see how scary this is, right? Because it's almost, you almost would be better sometimes if there is a law or if there is an age, yeah. because it's black or white. Yeah. Here you have some government agencies doing whatever the heck they want to do or whatever they think is right, or whatever, they, or, or whatever the person handling the case thinks is right. So now the, onus on him, now the onus is on him legally to prove that they are capable to do this. It, 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 in the event they bring an application, yes. right. And he probably doesn't want to deal with that. So the, the, the best thing to do, logically, would be just wait, I believe, till the older child is age 12, and then everything's okay. But, you know, why should someone be forced to do that? Right? Why should he be forced to, uh, you know, to, 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 to be bullied? What's the significance of 12 years if in BC there is no law? Or, or is that considered, you know, once you reach there, it's a different discussion? My understanding was in BC, I think the issue was the, the oldest child is one year below the oh, threshold. Right, That's right. my understanding. But again, so, so but, but the, does three months make a difference? Does is it, is it matter if they're six months away? Like, I mean, we're talking about maturity here, and, and years really, I think, at a certain point uh, are not entirely relevant. Uh, do you think if he tries to fight this in any way, he'll get resistance from something else? Uh, they'll find something else perhaps wrong with him that will <laughs> well, threaten but, his kids? I mean, because at the end of the day, no matter what his political feeling is or what his personal feeling is on this, rather, uh, he's gambling with his kids. 
and that's what, you know, us as lawyers, right, go through every day. Is this worth it, right? Even though you're, and that's unfortunately the, the power imbalance we have here, right? He's probably right. There's probably no problems. The kids are fine. They're safer today than they probably were 20 years ago. They got cell phones, all kinds of things. Hmm. Um, but um, is it worth it, right? Financially, emotionally, everything. And, and you get the people that take the fight and you get those that don't. And that's going to be his choice. Where does this leave things for the Ministry of Children and Family Development in B.C.? Um, are they going to be under the microscope now? What's, I guess that depends on the court of public opinion, doesn't it? Right. So they, they have nothing to lose, really. They have money. There's resources. Again, there's bad people out there. We all know that. There's, mm-hmm. bad, there's, there's parents that probably shouldn't have children or shouldn't you know, leave children alone. Is this guy one of them? I don't know. Probably not. Um, but, uh, and that's, but that's the issue, right? When you have an agency with so much power over really not just your kids, but your life. Will right? this draw attention to that, do you think? Will this draw attention to the fact uh, that this agency or agencies like this have a tendency to have too much power? There should be more checks and balances. Will that discussion come out of this at all, do you think, Jordan? I, I think so. And the reason is it's very subjective. Right. You're dealing with, you know, uh, an example would be in a criminal context, you know, when you apply to get a pardon. Right. It goes on one person's desk and that person decides whether or not you get your life back. Right. And so there's a lot of power in a small amount of place. And I think that's an issue. Do you think the um, uh, do you think this agency interviewed the children at all before making this decision or they always do? Yeah, (laughs) they always do because they assume there's more bad conduct. Right. And we better get to the kids first before dad covers it up hmm. and, 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 and tells them not to say he hasn't been home in two weeks. Right. So or he's been drinking or whatever it is. They always do that. And they go to them first. Uh, clearly, though, um, whatever they said didn't help their case in any way, because obviously she's you know, they banned them from the bus. Right, there's nothing because he's probably a good dad. Yeah. Probably hasn't done anything wrong. Yeah. And 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 there's and, and and whether this is wrong or not is open to interpretation. I mean, um, uh, but uh, but that's the issue. So, so that's not the issue. The issue is you have somebody that can come in out of nowhere and say, "This is how you're going to live, and this is how you're going to be a dad, and this is how you're going to be a parent." And if you don't do it, I'm going to make your life really difficult. Uh, as you mentioned, Jordan, obviously there is a great need for these agencies. There's lots of people who need protected from their parents. Are there or should there be more checks and balances here in some way? Can we do that? There should be more objectivity, which means there should be more, okay, um, um, other factors, right, to consider what's fair in the circumstances, not just what X person thinks. And, that, and, and then and the problem is if you don't comply, they can make your life difficult pretty easily. And if you don't have money and resources to fight, what do you do? You need your kid. Uh, in Ontario, it's 16 years of age. It says, again, this is a very gray area, and it's more about restrictions and being left alone. So what is the law in Ontario? So again, Ontario, with respect to this issue on the bus, there is uh, no full blanket black or white law. And we've talked about why that's good and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's good in the sense that a parent can kind of have control, what you want. You want them to have freedom. You don't want the state to say you can't go to work on time because you've got to drive your kid to school at age 14 or whatever. But at the same time, the, the double-edged sword is you get an agency with a, with a lot of power, okay, and a, 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 that can create a lot of challenges quickly 
for the parent. So that's the double-edged sword. Jordan Donich has been with us, criminal lawyer, Donich Law. Jordan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.